You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bot and Megan Gesner. Welcome back, boys and pals. We're coming at you with another re-release, and it is a re-release two-parter. I'm going to turn it over to Harini Mm -hmm. um, to talk about it a little bit. Like listening back, like what are your what are your thoughts? I. I just remember when I, well, first of all, Poison Pals, when I brought this episode to the pod and to Megan's more specifically, I was still recording in my closet, my childhood bedroom closet. Um, And that was back when I, my computer would overheat or my laptop would overheat. So I would always record with a tray of ice, like a baking sheet. I would fill it up with ice every night. And my parents would be like, what in the actual world is she doing? And I was like taking a baking sheet, filling it to the brim with ice because you guys, by the end of our one hour recording, that ice was all gone. It was melted. Like that's how much my laptop was overheating. yeah, because it would the fan would catch it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I gotta be honest. I didn't know that that had stopped. When did you stop doing that? <laughs> yeah, the ice, the ice, um, ice tray was still being utilized because you have the same laptop, right? Or I do. No, no, no. It's the same laptop, but then I I worked smarter, not harder. And I think a lot of it has to do with what platform we use. Like we use a different platform. We didn't use what we're using now with Riverside Studios. So I think that previous platform was a little more sensitive to any kind of noise because it picked up everything like literally it, it it could have been my mic too right we were still going hard with audacity that's we what were. we were still using back then right okay we were you. using audacity so i think it was a combination of audacity just being too good at its job and picking up every ounce of noise plus i was using a, using a different mic back then which was not this is now getting technical, guys. Sorry. But if you guys are into podcasts, we were not using dynamic mics at the time. So mm-hmm. I was using mm-hmm. a Yeti microphone that is like picking up even the gust of dust wind that was passing yes. through my laptop. So yes. yeah, it was difficult. <laughs> I couldn't even breathe heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it was picking up Whoville on that little dust. <laughs> exactly. I remember bringing this to my bedroom closet with Megan, with my baking sheet of ice, everything, everything was there. And I was remember being so excited to tell this story because I remember when I said, Megan, we are talking about MK Ultra and Megan's brain just goes, (laughs) it was a fun one. It was a fun one. And it was special to me because it was the very first time we ever did a two-parter for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And of course, my very first two-parter, I'm one of of many. Uh, So yeah, you're going to get to hear part one this week and then part two next week. So, but today I'm going to be talking about MK Ultra, which is, of course, if you guys haven't heard about it, it's a CIA operated mind control experiment that happened 
way back in the 50s. But for mm-hmm. this episode, I focus on MK Ultra specifically with LSD because as we mm-hmm. know, or that you'll come to know rather, with MK Ultra, it wasn't just LSD. They were targeting and investigating numerous products that were mm-hmm. re- related to human behavior, but specifically trying to figure out if there's any molecules or compounds that could aid in mind control. Uh, and this right. was something that was going on uh, to combat against the Soviet Union. The issue is that they were doing this on people unknowingly. So that was like the mm. whole controversy. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of controversy with this. But that aside, you'll listen to that in the episode. I wanted to do a callback. Megan asked the fantastic question of why did they call it Project Artichoke, which is oh, a great yes. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. And I thought, you know, I could do – there's really not much. Like the base, the reason why we do these intros is maybe there might be updates to the episode mm-hmm. and that have passed. But I wanted to know like maybe I can do some due diligence and look this up because I'm sure there's a reason. The answer is there is no reason. <laughs> so we, I mean, someone, okay. Someone who was working on this project just so happened to have the best artichoke he's ever had. Right. And he's like, we need to use this yeah. as inspiration for the name. Correct. Correct. So Project Artichoke, if if you do look it up, actually, there are documents from the trials that came out after MKUltra in the 70s. So here, here's what it says about Project Artichoke. It says, Project Artichoke is an agency cryptonym for the study and or use of special interrogation methods and techniques that include the use of drugs and chemicals, hypnosis, and total isolation as a form of psychological harassment. And boy, was it psychological harassment, as you will find out. The last thing that I will say to end out this intro before you jump into the actual episode is something I didn't know from before, which is always fun to like reference pop culture. Uh, the book, The Manchurian Candidate, which I have heard of that name so many times, I've not read it. Uh, it was written by Richard Condon, was a dramatization of MK Ultra. And the book is about a U.S. citizen subjected to brainwashing, and essentially he's a sleeper for communist China that when the time was right, he would carry out assassinations on behalf of the communist agenda. But if you're not a reader like Megan, then you can watch the film adaptation of The Manchurian Candidate called The Men Who Stare at Goats, featuring George Clooney, Ewan McGregor, Kevin Spacey, and Jeff Bridges, who are partially the result of Project MKUltra. So on that note, guys, we will just let you dive straight into episode, our original episode six about MKUltra. Enjoy. Yeah. Maybe take a tab of LSD while you listen. (laughs) Okay, bye. Before we get into the rest of the episode, if you've been enjoying our content so far, please go rate and review us wherever you might be listening from, or don't. Just keep on hanging with us. All right, on to the rest of the episode. What's up, guys? We're back for episode six. It's already episode six. I can't believe it. Wow. Doing work. We're doing the damn thing. Okay, guys? I just finished one of my hardest rotations, and now I'm off for six weeks. And thank God, because I needed it. I am so burnt out. (laughs) I'm just going to enjoy it. And 
our favorite ep- not episode our favorite holiday is coming up which is hallow's eve hallow's eve the witchiest of the witchiest which i'm so excited for if we had come out with this earlier i was thinking we could have done like a special halloween episode where we tell ghost stories instead of poison stories i know that would have been dope maybe we can do both maybe we can do a mashup we can do mashup so for people that are listening now you probably are listening to this in the past or what will happen is Megan and I, along with our friend Drew, we're going to be camping on Halloween because for those of you who don't know, this Halloween, it's a rare full moon. I knew that, which is rare for Halloween. Yes, it is. I did just learn during this quarantine that it's just not that for some reason, yeah. the date of Halloween has just never lined up with a full moon. So it's going to be a special one. That's why for all of y'all listening... <laughs> I want you to know, Harini and I have been planning this camping trip (laughs) centered around Halloween for a while now. And I was very adamant about camping because I wanted to be in the woods, under the full moon, being witchy, (laughs) getting up to nonsense, and summoning spirits. We're going to summon all the spirits. It's going to be great. They're going to bring us good luck into the new year. Okay. Yes. (laughs) All right, Harini. Time for you to pick your poison. All right. All right. Hi, friends. So before we get into the rest of the episode, hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please leave us a rating and review if you like this episode or any of our episodes so we can continue giving you your weekly lethal dose of true crime and toxicology. All right, on to the rest of the episode. A little background on my personal connection to this. So on happenstance, I was listening to a different podcast and essentially, long story short, I think this is going to be a two-parter episode. Ooh, that is a first. I'm excited. That is a first. Let's lock and load for this two-parter. If it comes to that, yeah, I'm yeah. excited. No, it, it will. It is decided. <laughs> it will come to that. Okay, it is decided. She has said. Yes. So I will do the first part of this today. And then after your story, or maybe I'll do two in a row next week, I will do my second part of this to follow up. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to just jump right in it. So this story takes place in the 1950s. So Megan, take your mind all the way back, all the way back. There's no computers. Going back in time. Back, 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 back. Sorry. We're going to blast the past. We're having, I'm trying to think of things like toasters, I think, are a thing. Like we're just getting toasters. So people are getting hot, crunchy bread. That's some good toast. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah, some good toast. <laughs> amongst other things. But we're in early 1950s, pushing up into the 1960s. So early years of the Cold War in the United States. And so a very brief history of the Cold War. This was a time where paranoia was running high. Okay. After the surrender of Nazi Germany in 1945, the Soviet Union was determined to put on a united front by installing these left-wing governments in Eastern Europe that were liberated by the Red Army. There was definite fear among the allied countries, particularly the United States and Great Britain, that communist parties would rise to power in Europe. Also, the United States lost its nuclear monopoly, and so the Red Scare communism was at its height. And like I was saying, there's so much paranoia, Red Scare was going on, and the U.S. government was constantly on the alert and to the point where like, it believed that there were moles infiltrated into the highest official ranks. So people were pointing fingers at their own people, so to speak. Okay, so the crescendo to all this 
paranoid cacophony was the creation of a little CIA side project that went through various names such as Bluebird, Project Artichoke, and eventually landed on what we know as MK Ultra. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'm in it. I'm. I love yes. this. Okay, go ahead, <laughs> Megan. Do you know anything about this? Because I did not. <laughs> MK Ultra. This is the LSD testing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I know just a tiny little bit. Okay. Cool. So you'll definitely be giving me an education today. So you tell me. All right. Sounds good. Going more into the name MK Ultra. So this was a CIA cryptonym with MK representing the project that was sponsored by the CIA's technical services staff, followed by the word Ultra, which was a nod to just the most secret classification of World War II intelligence. And all of this was led by a man named Sidney Gottlieb. Okay. So Sidney was born on August 3rd, 1918 to Hungarian Jewish parents in the Bronx, New York. He graduated magna cum laude in chemistry and received his PhD in chemistry as well from Caltech Institute here here in California. Nice. Go Caltech. Yeah, yeah. It, he was an unassuming man with a speech impediment. He had a, he had a stutter and a club foot. Interesting. That very interesting. And what I'm about to say next is even more interesting. So his club foot prevented him from serving in World War II. Okay. But it didn't prevent his lifelong passion of folk dancing. <laughs> oh. That was feel... literally written there. I cannot. Oh my goodness. I mean, you got to live, right? Like <laughs> you got to live. Follow your passions, right? So <laughs> follow your passions. Actually, good segue into not even segue. There is no segue. I'll just like I need to say my sources. So, really quickly, I got a bunch of sources from various places, and the first one is called Inside the Archive of an LSD Researcher with Ties to the CIA's MK Ultra Mind Control Project. A very revealing title, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> and so the okay. authors' names are Tom O'Neill and Dan Pipenbring. I also got information from History.com, Politico, NPR, and then, of course, our tried and true Wikipedia. Okay, here we go. And so during this whole time that MK Ultra was going on, there was there was a reporter allowed to essentially document the goings on, which is kind of interesting to me. So he had this access and he was writing all about MK Ultra and his name was Stephen Kinzer. And so just to start off with a quote by him, he says, Gottlieb wanted to create a way to seize control of people's minds, and he realized it was a two-part process. So Kinzer says, First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Mm -hmm. And second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. We didn't get too far on number two, but he did a lot of work on number one. <laughs> Keeping it real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and according to Kinzer, MKUltra was a continuation of research that was already coming out of Nazi Germany that Nazi doctors were implementing in the concentration camps. And so the CIA reportedly recruited Nazi torturers to continue these experiments. So now let's talk about the origins of this project. So it really all started in 1949 at the trial of Roman Catholic primate of Hungary, Joseph Cardinal Minzenzi, who was on trial for treason. Right. And so at the trial, the Cardinal's behavior was described as being very bizarre. He seemed very disoriented. He spoke in a monotone fashion and confessed to crimes that he didn't do. 
Similarly, after the Korean War ended, American prisoners of war signed statements that defamed the United States, and some confessed to war crimes that they also didn't do. Logical explanation to all of this, per the CIA, was it had to be brainwashing. And so they believed the communists had discovered a drug or a technique that can control minds. Or, you know, just like (laughs) severe abuse where people end up having so much psychological damage and say things that protect them. 100%. Just like, you know, old-fashioned breaking of the souls. The project was led under Sidney Gottlieb, but originally it was started under the orders of CIA director at the time, Alan Dules, I think, D-U-L-L-E-S, on April 13th of 1953. So like I said, CIA was super convinced that the Soviet Union had discovered a drug that allowed them to control human minds, and they believed they had used it on these prisoners of war during the Korean War. And so the CIA decide we have to find our own mind control drug. And so they start this whole MK Ultra. A majority of Gottlieb's research was funded in secret at very well-known universities like Columbia, Stanford, UCLA, list goes on as well as other research centers. And most of these people that the drug was tested on happened to be at U.S. prisons and in detention centers in Japan, Germany, and the Philippines. Yes. Most of the time, these academic centers that were funding the project say they had no idea what their money was being used for and that it was being used for such a purpose. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know. It's kind of up in the air. That just seems unlikely. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know. I I know it's a different time. It's the 1950s. A lot of shit got swept under the rug, but I don't know. We'll, We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, it is very possible that the CIAs approached these universities and presented it as, oh, we're interested in studying this particular drug or whatever. And then the university is like, oh, yeah, that sounds dope. Mm -hmm. Do what you need to do. And they don't exactly know how it's being tested by the CIA. Exactly. Because there was a lot of secrecy going on around this. And the way that Sydney would present this research to universities saying, oh, we're trying to find a cure for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So that may have been just like under false pretenses. And then it just got out of hand and had no oversight. And there were more than 150 research projects going on at the time, but almost all of the records were destroyed in 1973 by order of the CIA director Richard Helms. And so the main headquarters of MK Ultra took place at an army base 50 miles from Washington in Maryland called Fort Detrick. Detrick has been and still is the main CIA Center for Biological Research. And during the Cold War, it was the mind control research empire. Okay. So according to them, there's just so little time to lose in this race against everything to do with the Soviet Union. The CIA set their eyes on a very promising substance called lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD as we know it colloquially. The CIA arranged to pay $240,000 worth of LSD, which was the entire world's supply of LSD at the time. Wow. They literally sucked that dry from the world. And so that was roughly $2.3 million today. And so although LSD was chosen as this wonder drug, there were also experiments being done with other drugs, so like MDMA or ecstasy, mescaline, heroin, barbiturates, meth, and psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Once Gottlieb got his hands on the LSD, he puts it straight to work. So he distributes it all to the hospitals, clinics, prisons, and any other institutions he could carry out the research in to understand what LSD was, how it worked in people, and how they might manipulate it for that mind control. 
Now, the people who volunteered for these experiments, and volunteers is a very light word that I use, <laughs> began taking LSD in many cases, found it pleasurable. So there's just so much I can discuss about this topic. Even though majority of the records were destroyed, there were, you know, people who lived through that time. And just thinking about it, like, I almost guarantee if you were living in the U.S. at that time, you probably got drugged with LSD. Yeah. That's how prevalent this research was and how much lack of oversight there was in regulation. So, but just to discuss one of their such operations, there's an operation called Operation Midnight Climax. Okay. This operation essentially utilized government-employed sex workers, which I didn't think was a thing. Because, <laughs> you know, when you said Midnight Climax in my head, I was like, heh heh. And then it turns out it is actually about sex workers. So it, it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it all makes sense. So these sex workers would lure these unsuspecting men to a CIA secret safe house where they would then be drugged with LSD unknowingly. And oftentimes, the men would be drugged with cocktails that contained LSD, and the safe house, which was typically like a hotel room, would contain a two-way mirror. And so behind the mirror were the CIA operatives who just watched to see the drug's effects on the men's behavior, and they would place recording devices in the rooms disguised as electrical outlets. So overall, very, very creepy shit. <laughs> yeah, very um, voyeurism-esque. Voyeurism, exactly. And so majority of the Midnight Climax experiments took place not too far from home. They happened majority in San Francisco, actually. Marin County. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, which is a kind of an interesting place to do it at. I just feel like I always think of Marin as like very wealthy old people, so... <laughs> And then across the way in New York City. But there were famous people involved in MKUltra. So a huge issue with MKUltra, of course, was that the vast majority of the participants were not participants at all. They often didn't even know they were being drugged and definitely did not give consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. However, there was a portion of people who did take LSD voluntarily. And mostly these were celebrities or soon-to-be celebrities and it actually played a part in spurring the psychedelic age of the 1960s and 1970s. And one of those famous people was Ken Kesey, I think is how you say it. And he's author of the 1962 novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he happily volunteered for MK Ultra experiments right. with LSD while he was a college student at Stanford. So Kesey found the drug so pleasurable that he went on to promote the drug by hosting LSD parties that he called acid tests. Acid tests combined LSD with musical performances by bands including Grateful Dead, Robert Hunter, and Robert Hunter, who is the Grateful Dead lyricist, also took part in these experiments, along with Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, and James Joseph Whitey Bulger, the Boston mobster. That is a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> And like I mentioned earlier, the widespread use of LSD actually kicked off the psychedelic hippie age, which is yeah. pretty ironic if you consider what the U.S. government was intending to do with it, as it became a symbol of rebellion and, in a way, a new age of thinking against the structure and formality that the U.S. government upheld. And so talking more about the LSD experiments on the more darker side of things. So these experiments were seriously some of the most gruesome that the U.S. government has ever conducted on human beings. It was just absolute torture. LSD was first studied in CIA operatives themselves. So two agents would take it and then sit in a room together for hours to document the effects on each other. 
And then it kind of to expand from there. So it expanded to any person in the CIA without their knowing. So LSD in their morning coffee at 8 a.m. And then running. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then literally running across Washington, thinking all the cars are monsters like out to get him. Especially when you're you're so not aware that you've just been drugged and, and thinking of LSD and the effects that it has, that's terrifying, like completely. Absolutely. Yeah. This idea that obviously you're not aware that you're drugged. Right. But it's that moment while going through the high that you realize you've been drugged. That is your fast track to a bad trip. <laughs> exactly. That's that's such a good point. Yeah. And you don't want to have a bad trip while on LSD for sure. So they essentially expanded it from there, right? So they started to move away from CIA operatives or at least like add on to that. And they started to give it to the more vulnerable population, such as mental patients, which is probably like the worst population to give LSD to, prisoners, drug addicts, and sex workers. Because there's quotes from the documentation saying like there's they're clearly targeted for a reason. Right. If anything happens, they're kind of expendable, which is horrible. They're targeting what would be considered the undesirables of the 1950s. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's now known well that these LSD experiments were tested on a lot of prison inmates. One such event was in a prison in Lexington, Kentucky, where seven African-American prisoners were given multiple doses of LSD for 77 days straight. Wow. Like, that is so bad like i i can't even imagine your sense of reality is not even there anymore like you're you know like i can't even i don't even know why people would do that i'm assuming this is definitely one of those contexts where this was not voluntary oh 100 non-voluntary and there's not a lot of information in terms of follow-up like what happened to these men or anything like that of course so yeah i was just gonna say so yeah go ahead because that's what really interests me about LSD. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I know about LSD is based on, you know, the one drugs class that I took in college. Yeah. <laughs> but even so, you know, with the use of shrooms mm-hmm. becoming so much more prevalent yes. on the clinical side, mm-hmm. there is this tie-in of LSD as a psychedelic in medicine. Yeah. And so we see a lot more, you know, documentaries about it. And what fascinates me about this story about these inmates getting such a high dosage over 77 days I wonder, does that add to a body of evidence where such a high dosage over such a long period of time, does that Mm -hmm. actually have a detrimental effects? Mm -hmm. Because I know that the body of work that is available currently would indicate that the only long lasting detrimental effects would be if you do potentially have a bad trip and then that unlock some sort of or I don't Mm -hmm. know, it it leads you to harm yourself or unlock some mental trauma. Right. But other than that, we hear, or at least what I have learned, is that Mm -hmm. there is positives to LSD because it's non-addictive. Yeah. People go through it and they're absolutely fine. So I'm just wondering, is there absolutely no follow-up to those testing on those inmates? Like, did that go anywhere towards beneficial clinical research? Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know, because there's another aspect to this where they're not really testing for the clinical benefit. So that's the thing. You have to be looking for it, right? Like, we have no idea if, if it improved their circumstances. I see. All they're looking for is, is it going to break them so we can reprogram their minds? So, right. you know, that's one of those things is like, if nowadays, like if you're going to give that, like you were saying, like some of these psychedelics are now being brought into real clinical trials to see how it could have clinical benefit for patients with resistant depression and things like that. 
And so they're looking for those benefits in a holistic manner. Here, it was like very zeroed in. Like we're just looking if we can control your mind, which is, you know, horrible. They're, you know, supplying it with a biased intention of like, they want a certain result. So any other result that doesn't give them what they want is not worth documenting. Exactly, exactly. So we we have no clue on that. But many of the experiments started to be conducted overseas because there weren't any legal headaches or restraints in these countries. So like I was saying earlier, like Japan, Germany, and the Philippines. And in these countries, people were literally grabbed, thrown into cells, drugged, and then while under the effects of the drug were exposed to electroshock therapy, sensory deprivation, and extreme temperatures to just further break them down to see if they can wipe the human mind and reprogram them to their benefit. Just, you know, absolutely horrendous tactics. Yeah. These experiments, and this part was like shocking. These experiments went on from 1953 to 1973. So 20 fucking years, dude. Yeah. That's a long time that people were getting constantly exposed to this. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you were around that time in the U.S., especially in those hot spots, like I was mentioning, like San Francisco or California, New York, there's a good chance that you may have been drugged. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and didn't you know. And the entire yeah. time wow. this Gottlieb character acted with zero oversight. When I said zero oversight, like literally none. Hmm. Majority of the people that even worked in the government at the time didn't even know who he was at all. He was very this unknown character for a long time. He didn't have to report to anyone, nor did the government want him to in a way. What they didn't know couldn't hurt them. So that was kind of the mentality at the time. But as I mentioned earlier, most of the documents were destroyed by Gottlieb as the MK Ultra research started to come to its end in 1973. So what happened in 1973 was that Richard Nixon became president and removed the CIA director, Richard Helms, from his director's position. Keep in mind that Helms was essentially the only person that knew what Gottlieb was up to this entire time. Mm -hmm. And so it was only a matter of time before Gottlieb was removed, too. Since they knew they were both on their way out, they decided it would be best to remove any and all evidence of MKUltra. However, there were still records in other places that detailed like expense reports and kind of things along those lines. So there was enough there to put together a picture of what was actually going on. Obviously, hints and rumors of what was going on at Fort Detrick started to come out to the public regardless of how hush-hush everything was kept. And in 1974, a New York Times journalist named Seymour Hirsch published a story about how the CIA conducted non-consensual, consensual, non-consensual <laughs> drug experiments and spying illegally on U.S. citizens. This story was a starting point of a very long and lengthy process of uncovering all the dirty details of MKUltra. So the next year was 1975. President Ford was in a total governmental mess in the wake of Watergate and just a general distrust of the government. So Ford set up a commission on CIA activities, which investigates illegal CIA activities, and they started with MKUltra. Gotcha. The commission was led by Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and is commonly referred to as the Rockefeller Commission. Another committee called the Church Committee, which was run by Idaho Democratic Senator at the time, Frank Church, was a lead investigator on the CIA, FBI, and other U.S. intelligence agencies. And so the church committee uncovered plots to assassinate foreign leaders like Fidel Castro. There was a huge plot to 
assassinate Fidel Castro with LSD. And they also were trying to put thallium, which is just like another drug, in his shoes of all places. Mm, interesting. Because thallium will cause you to lose your hair. And Gottlieb was convinced that Fidel Castro's, a lot of his power and his charisma came from his hair. Like, you know, just like his features. Like his looks as a symbol of power. Right, exactly. So that was a plan that they had. They had, they had a string of plans like that. There were many, many other documents on MKUltra related to that. And this all culminated in Ford's 1976 Executive Order on Intelligence Activities that prohibited, quote, experimentation with drugs on human subjects, except with informed consent in writing and witnessed by a disinterested party of each such human subject, which really just kind of hits on what you said earlier, Megan, like about they're biased. They're completely biased, right? Right. They're really like striving for a certain outcome if you're that biased, like you shouldn't be the one doing and conducting these experiments. That was a big part of, you know, the rhetoric moving forward. I don't want to sweep this under the rug at all, but I just want to emphasize how powerful Gottlieb was. He was the most powerful unknown man of the 20th century. Mm. He essentially had a license to kill by the U.S. government and conducted these horrifying drug experiments across three continents for 20 years. Wow. Of course, there were various trials and lawsuits that ensued, and so Gottlieb testified before the church committee under an alias Joseph Snyder with the promise of immunity, which I find very confusing because just considering that he was essentially the mastermind of this whole thing for 20 years, I don't know if he didn't go to prison because no one technically died or that they have documentation of. I see. But he basically didn't serve any time. He didn't really have any repercussions at all. Right. After the trials, he retired from the CIA. He lived in an eco-friendly home in Virginia <laughs> okay. where he raised goats okay. and promoted peace and, and environmentalism. Mm, yeah. It sounds like he started to take the LSD. Oh, oh, he definitely. That was something he proudly states. Like he's taken LSD himself over. And I'm sure everyone did because no one really, you know, knew what it did. So everyone was curious about it. Right. right? It's not right. really like how it is today where like not everyone off the street is going to take LSD from you. Right. But later he and his wife went to India where they spent 18 months running a hospital there. And yeah, he lived to a ripe old age of 80 and died in 1999 at his home. So lived a pretty normal life. So that's kind of the whole deal with MK Ultra as a story. But I want to get into exactly like the pharmacology of it because mm -hmm. that is definitely an interesting part of it all. So what the hell is LSD? So <laughs> Yes, tell us. Yes. So as it is formally known, like I said, lysergic acid, diethylamide, LSD is a hallucinogenic drug that was invented in 1938 by a Swiss chemist by the name of Albert Hoffman as Sandoz. It's still like a very, very popular pharmaceutical company in Basel, Switzerland. And it's derived from ergot, which is a fungus that attacks rye. And ergot is actually still used today medically to prevent migraines primarily and other uses. LSD is 100% synthetic, but its biological activity can be traced back to this natural fungus from which it derives. Got it. This Albert guy discovers LSD in part by experimenting on himself and documenting the effects. Now, let's get into the effects. So LSD stimulates your sympathetic nervous system in the midbrain, which leads to pupillary dilation, increase in body temperature, and rise in blood sugar levels. So that's more like your physical response to that. Most psychedelic substances have a serotonin blocking effect and aren't very dopaminergic, and that's where LSD is different. 
It's also a dopamine agonist. So together with serotonin, it's really activating your happy hormones, which is basically what serotonin and dopamine are. Yeah. LSD has a very short half-life, but a long duration of action. It's about 6 to 12 hours from the time that you take it. And it was actually recently discovered in 2017 about how that actually happens. I think this is interesting. So LSD will bind to the active site of the serotonin receptor and then a leucine residue around the active site forms a lid over LSD that basically traps LSD in the receptor active site. And that's what causes its long duration and potency. Interesting. Yeah. Is there, I mean, okay, if you don't know, that's totally okay. But mm-hmm. you know how there are terms like agonizer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or suppressor or whatever. Yeah. Is there a term for that function of a chemical literally bonding to a site and causing a lid to hold it into place? Yeah. Is that an agonizer? What would that be called? Yeah, it's definitely an agonist. Okay. So LSD itself is a serotonin receptor agonist Okay. or a 5-HT agonist. Honestly, it gets really confusing when you look at serotonin and its agonistic versus antagonistic effects. Uh, It has a lot of weird negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops that we won't get into today. But essentially, yes, it is a serotonin receptor agonist. And then that leucine residue function, keeping that lid on, so to speak, is responsible for LSD's prolonged mechanism action. So that prolonged half-life. And when you have that extended duration of a serotonin receptor activation, then you have those prolonged effects of euphoric feelings, the hallucinations, and so on and so forth. Everything that we know LSD can cause. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I can picture the graphic that they would present (laughs) in like AP Bio or even in a college classes where it's bouncing colorful diagrams in my mind right now (laughs) yeah where you see like the synapse right with the little serotonins bouncing but within the synapse exactly the little ball bouncing around having a ball yeah (laughs) so it lasts for a long time but it really just depends on your dose your body weight and age like any other drug right so lsd can cause visual and auditory hallucinations Mm. a good trip can make one feel like they're floating Mm -hmm. They're joyous or really euphoric. And it's typical to visualize very vibrant colors and objects, surfaces that ripple or breathe. That's that's a common way to describe it. Things are breathing around them, inanimate objects. And an altered sense of time and space and morphing objects. There are also effects of experiencing other dimensions and temporal planes. Just to give you an idea of what that might be like, there's a verse from the Beatles who are well known to have taken LSD. And so one of their songs, the verse is, Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade sky. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly, a girl with kaleidoscope eyes. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. (laughs) Right. It is beautiful. And touching on what you were saying earlier, it is known to trigger psychosis, particularly in people who have a family history of schizophrenia. So just being aware of that and being safe, you know, and this this doesn't go just for LSD. There are other drugs as well that, you know, taking that and activating these types of hormones in your brain in an overstimulated fashion can trigger these these episodes. That's one of those things that, again, I'm I'm no expert on this. And that everything that I say right now (laughs) is stuff that I take from the trending popularity of documentaries on psilocybin and LSD and hallucinogenics used in therapy. Yeah, exactly. But I think I'm all about Mm -hmm. actually using hallucinogenics to help people with mental disorders or severe depression and understanding that 
when it is used in a way where there is a person that is present to guide you through that trip. Right. And understanding that in a clinical setting, it is used in a way where there is someone present that helps guide you through that trip. But when it's done as the CIA did, where it's massive dosaging (laughs) and they're like, what's going to happen to this person who already has some sort of psychosis and we're just Mm going to double up on this? That's when it's bad. But if you have, you know, you're you're microdosing or you've got someone there to walk you through the trip or what you feel or see or what is unlocked during the trip, I think that's beautiful. And I 100% advocate for that. Mm-hmm. Yes, 100% agree with you, Megan. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, as of now, there are no medical uses for LSD. It's what we call as a controlled one substance where, right. you know, there's no medical benefit at this time. I have a good feeling that's going to change in the, at least in the next five to 10 years, maybe 15. It is being investigated now for its use to treat and help with depression, anxiety, and drug addiction with some positive results. So there is preliminary research out there that show that it does have benefit in those areas. Of course, there's a lot of drawbacks to it. And I can get more into this with ketamine. Mm. That's been a big thing to come out in the drug area, that S-ketamine or, you know, the derivative ketamine for being used to treat resistant depression. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why I say it's going to be a huge barrier to get it to market is because when you're thinking about giving S-ketamine to patients, exactly what Megan said. They have to be under a watchful eye during the entire time. So it's a lot of work on the provider. So the patient has to come in. You have to do all these tests beforehand, make sure that they don't have any family history, make sure they're relatively stable otherwise. And then you're administering the drug has to be administered by the healthcare provider, who is usually the psychiatrist or the MD, whoever that might be. And then they have to sit there with them for the entire duration of the experience to make sure nothing happens. And that can be like a four to five hour process, if not more, depending on, you know, dose, body weight, all these things that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And then adding into the fact a hallucinogenic like LSD, I don't even know how they're even write, you know, treatment protocols for that. Like, how do you even like dose that? What are you looking for? Things like that. It's going to be a big task, but I'm not saying it can't be done, but there are a lot of things to think about. But again, like Megan said, it's not known to be addictive. So that's a huge plus, unlike some of the other medications out there. And surprisingly, there isn't much about LSD that makes that shit poison. Yeah, that's why I like it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's actually a very, I don't want to say docile drug, but it's not deadly. There are no documented deaths from a chemical toxicity of LSD. Of course, if you get bad street LSD that's laced with something, Of course, something can happen, but that can happen with anything. Right. But if you're getting good LSD as it's meant to be, you're not going to have any deaths. But there are deaths related to behavioral toxicities. Hmm. And that's just because what it makes you feel makes you feel euphoric. It makes you feel invincible. So there are detailed accounts of people who take LSD and they like jump off a bridge because they think they can fly. There's So yes, in a way it can, but in terms of like the chemical effects, it will not kill you. And also I... And I think that one, I think it's super awesome that we're living in an age where we're seeing a revival of using hallucinogenic drugs. Yeah. And we know that testing on hallucinogenic drugs was obviously starting to escalate during the 1960s through the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And then you have an... Honestly, I blame a lot of things on the Reagan administration. <laughs> Once Reagan was in the White House, our whole country was just Let it out, girl. sent back 50 years. <laughs> Including our tuition from the UC schooling system. Absolutely. Ugh. That whole administration 
I just think about like the feminist movement and how it was in its heyday and it was so close. Yeah. And I think that, well, one, I think it's that it's super awesome that we are living in an age where we are seeing a revival of using hallucinogenic drugs for beneficial purposes. And we know that testing mm-hmm. on hallucinogenic hallucinogenic drugs was obviously, yeah. as you mentioned, starting to escalate actually during the 1960s through the yeah. 70s and maybe stopped in the 80s. Yeah, definitely. I just think about how the feminist movement was in its heyday and we were so close to so many amazing things. And then Reagan mm-hmm. was voted in the White House and it all just fell to shit. But as a part of that progressive movement in the 70s, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have testing on a lot of drugs. And I think that we were getting there. But as part of that, you know, progressive movement in the mm-hmm. 70s, you have actually a lot of testing on hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic drugs. And I think that we were getting to a point where we were looking at it clinically and then it was just stopped in its tracks mm-hmm. because that administration wanted nothing to do with that. And it could have actually started with Nixon, you know, because Nixon wanted nothing to do with it with this, the whole CIA debacle. And it bled over the years into the eventual Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That being said, that's why I'm like, wow, how lucky are us who are able to see this revival? And it's cool that there even is a revival of interest in looking at hallucinogenic drugs clinically. I do want to say that that this notion of people harming themselves while on hallucinogenics, specifically LSD or acid, and this notion of jumping out a a window or off a bridge, as you said, while it is not impossible, that is a narrative that that administration did push to scare people from wanting to explore LSD and other hallucinogenics. And, you know, just being mindful of even we have so deeply framed a certain bias of the potential harm that is with LSD. And I think we need to recognize that we are smarter and better than that. Yeah, yeah. And we know how to dose our drugs. (laughs) So I'm almost of the mindset of like, we are not here to scare. Right. And me, I'm pushing that (laughs) this idea that jumping off a bridge is unlikely. Yeah. Not impossible, but unlikely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that if you just do it smart, then it will be a good experience, hopefully, depending on what you seek out of that experience. Anyways, that is just my thought process. No, completely. And I I definitely echo those sentiments because like you said it so well, like we are smarter and I think we need to give ourselves more credit than that. Like, first of all, there's so much more research out there detailing exactly like what the best dosing is, you know, what exactly you can do to you, how long you would take, things like that. And so if you really wanted to do your research and figure out like, oh, like what's a good dose for me? How do I microdose safely? And also just like with any Anything that you try that is to do with drugs, you know, doing it with someone you trust in an environment that you can trust, you know, just doing it safely, just like you would drink with people that you are comfortable with and like an environment that you're comfortable with. Same thing goes with these types of drugs, right? Absolutely. And and start small. Always microdose yeah. when you start off with something that you want to experiment with. And okay, I am only saying this as advocating for something like shrooms or LSD. (laughs) Right, right, right. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, (laughs) but I want to make clear that I am not advocating for like, oh, yeah, microdose meth. No, no, no. Because that's good. No, don't do drugs, kids. (laughs) No, I, I don't advocate for that. Even on the most what we would consider 
mundane level now mm-hmm. even trying weed like if you've never tried weed before mm-hmm. which i'm coming from california so there's a lot of weed usage yeah and across the country i think that yeah. their weed use has, is going up but regardless if you've never <laughs> tried weed before first of all no shame you should never feel pressured to try any drug but if you're interested in entering that start small yeah if you got a group of friends that are it's like take a hit take a hit like, don't ever listen to that shit. Yes. You just take baby steps. It's all about taking baby steps. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. And I want to preface, like, I'm not advocating for anything, but if you're going to do it, you know, do it safely. And yeah. for people who are interested, I know from anecdotes from friends, they find it to be a very eye-opening experience and a very spiritual experience where they can really like connect to themselves and the people around them. So yeah, just kind of taking it in equal parts and weighing the pros and cons individually to yourself. If you don't think it's a great idea for you, don't do it. Just do you. Right. But what I think it's really fascinating is like just to briefly touch on psilocybin or magic mushrooms, like there's a lot of good and cool work coming out of clinical research right now surrounding that. Right. It's so awesome. Like I I can't even believe the age that we're living in. Obviously things are so crazy, but medically I feel like we've come so far and we've really just broadened our minds so much. Yeah. In ways I didn't think was possible. Like there's no way I thought ketamine was gonna be an FDA approved drug. That's insane. You know, some of these things are hard to treat, anything to do with the mind. So the more the better anything we can do to help the people that we can i think that's a great service to them absolutely so, yeah very good stuff coming out of this but yeah. obviously mk ultra <laughs> sucks ass and you know that's the moral of that story <laughs> yeah they did it in a way that was not good abusively yeah that is the story of mk ultra part one okay yeah so stay tuned for part two but for now that is it for this week's episode awesome i loved it yes man as you could probably tell from my enthusiasm when i spoke (laughs) i am always interested in stories about hallucinogenic (laughs) drugs you know like i said i take one drugs class in college (laughs) but my professor was so objective and diplomatic about drugs as a whole that it just gave me this like very like a very balanced formation this balanced message that there really is no bad drug it is just Mm -hmm. they're elemental they're natural things in the world yeah and that doesn't mean that they are inherently negative things. Who, who, what class was this? Was that UCSD? This was at UCSD. And I think it was just called Drugs, Brain and Behavior. Wow. But it was cognitive science course. And I loved this professor. I will have to find his name because I should credit him. Definitely. He had this one story. Apparently, he was a big cigarette smoker, like just addicted to nicotine. Okay. And he told this story about how, you know, he's like, I was such a big smoker that there came a point where my wife gave me an ultimatum. Damn. And she was like, you could either choose cigarettes or you could choose me. Yeah. Like she was threatening to leave him. That's how bad his smoking addiction was. Yeah. And it is shocking how vulnerable he was with us with this story. But I digress. (laughs) There's not really... A message to the end of the story, but he basically mm-hmm. ended up quitting smoking. And he just said that it was very hard and that because it was this aha moment right. of his struggle with addiction. Because, you know, when you talk about drugs, you talk about yeah. addiction and what constitutes as addiction. Right. And he was like, it was an aha moment for him that he was so addicted wow. because addiction yeah. for it to count as addiction has to interfere with your day to day life and like normal going on. Oh, right. This was his moment of realizing that 
he did have an addiction because his wife was literally threatening to leave him over it. Yeah. So he quit it. And then that entered into our conversation about vaping and e-cigarettes, because at the time of when I took this class, e-cigarettes were becoming the big thing. Yeah, completely. And so we ultimately had a conversation about how how he considered vaping as an alternative to cigarettes. Yeah. But but it is just like how cigarettes were all the way throughout the 50s with medical companies Mm -hmm. literally being paid off to say that cigarettes and nicotine were safe. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, we don't know anything about vaping either. Mm -hmm. So there's really no story (laughs) there. But he just had a very diplomatic and open perspective about drugs and drug use. And he was very diplomatic about hallucinogenic drugs because his whole thing with LSD and he would emphasize that if you look at brain scans of people after their trip, there's literally no damage. It's non-addictive. He was the first person to point out to me, wow, why has this been demonized throughout my whole childhood, a.k.a. Dare. Anyway, that's just my rant. But I will have to find his name. He's he's a cool dude. Yeah, please do. That'd be awesome. I was just going to say... That would be a good story about the whole nicotine thing. Yes, that would be a good story. Because that was a whole... That's It's a huge scandal. That's a scandal. I think we talked about this in one of our first recordings, which is this concept Uh of... Oh, I think it was your radium story. Yeah. Where I was like, what do you think is right is literally right under our noses right now that we have no ideas or is that is actually causing us damage. Oh my God. Yeah. What, what companies are being paid off right now where we have all been suffering by some sort of like, who knows? We've just been duped yet to find out, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. I think that's it. We can do our antidotes of the week. Megan, you want to take it away? <laughs> yes. My antidote of the week is... Yes. I just took a little trip, very last minute decision up to San Francisco Mm -hmm. to visit our good friend, Drew Dickinson. Drew is my brother from another mother. But I think what was so nice about this was the spontaneity of the trip. Mm -hmm. I just needed to get away from where I currently live. And I just needed to step out and get a new view or new scenery. Yeah, completely. I am very happy that I did it. Yeah. San Francisco just so happened to be so beautiful over the weekend. The fires are finally subsiding. So it was clear skies, a wonderful 66 degrees. Oh, gosh, People yeah. are walking around in shorts and tank tops. Mm-hmm, and it was just mm-hmm. great. That's oh, my yeah. antidote. I just mm. had a little weekend vacation. Go ahead, Harini. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. For people that don't know, so I went to UCSF whenever me and Drew would like meet up and like hang out. He would ask me about it because he was interested in pharmacy school. And then he ended up going to UCSF too. And it was like perfect. And then he ended up living below me in the same unit. So it was like full circles. Like this is amazing. And it was the best time. When you think about having a good time of living with your best friend, if I was just bored, I'd be like, hey, Drew, what you doing? I was scurry downstairs. He'd scurry upstairs and we just hang out. And actually, this is a great segue into my antidote because something that Drew and I share together is around the time that this happened last year, we would set kind of like our date every week where we would like, okay, we're going to make our dinner and then we're going to meet each other in my living room and watch The Great British Bake Off, which... Oh, yeah. Yes. Like, I am so excited. It was like a little spark of joy in my life to log on to my Netflix, which I do way too regularly, and see that there was a new season of The Great British Bake Off on. And I was just like 
so excited because honestly, like a lot of my favorite shows are not being renewed or, you know, are on hold for like another year because of COVID. And I was like, for sure, thinking that especially Great British Bake Off was not going to happen on its usual basis because of what's going on. But damn, the British just like have it together. Like they just figured it out. They're like, nothing is going to come in the way of our scones and our tray bakes and our, you know, princess cakes. Like we are here to make it happen. I was just so thoroughly impressed. Like all the bakers decided to be in a bubble for 14 days Mm -hmm. and take COVID tests and they just did it. I'm so happy. Like we just watched the first episode with my family and it just... I'm sure a lot of people know Great British Bake Off, but if you haven't, I highly recommend watching it because it's just, it just cozy, it's just coziness to the core. I, I love it so much. And yeah, that is my antidote. I love that. I promise not every antidote is going to be about a TV show, guys. And if you are bored during quarantine or you need to pick up a new hobby, I think this is a great time to pick yeah. up baking, like especially with the holidays coming around the corner, pop some Great British Bake Off on and then do some yeah. baking while you're at it. So new skills, new hobbies to learn. Okay, but that is, that's it, right, Megan? That's it. So guys, until next time, don't risk it for that LSD biscuit. <laughs> Unless you're doing it safely. Okay. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>